Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, evening, and afternoon. Welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm your host, Ujan. Today we have with us Professor Vinayak Chaturvedi to discuss his new book, Hindutva and Violence, V.D. Savarkar and the Politics of History. It is published from State University of New York Press in 2022. Vinayak Chaturvedi is Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine, specializing in the intellectual and social history of modern South Asia. He's the author of Peace and Pasts, History and Memory in Western India, 2007, and the editor of Mapping Subaltern Studies and the Postcolonial, 2000, and the Pandemic Perspectives of Asia, 2020. He studied at the University of California, Los Angeles for his BA and MA, and completed his PhD at the University of Cambridge. He is the recipient of fellowships from the British Academy, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Stanford University's Schoenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center. He is the former editor of the Journal of Asian Studies 2018-21 and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Chaturvedi's public writings have appeared in The Nation, New Left Review Sidecar, The Wire, The Hindu, and Scroll. His new research examines the imperial origins of modern tennis for a book titled Empire Scheme. Thank you, Professor Chaturvedi, for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Yes. Okay. Um, Great. So um, our first question is always generally biographical. So we would, uh, can you tell us a bit about your intellectual journey and uh, more specifically how you came to write this book? Um. So, I mean, that's, it's been a long journey because I actually didn't start in the humanities or in history. Um, as an undergraduate, I actually studied um, biology and chemistry for almost three years before switching to history. Um, it was sort of uh, uh, the 
the problems of uh, doing certain kinds of work, um, different kind of intellectual rigor. I had always been interested in history, um, uh, both as an uh, as an undergraduate. I took a lot of courses on South Asian history uh, as an undergraduate. So the switch for me was was connected to a different kind of disciplinary rigor that I was interested in, as opposed to sort of lab work that I was becoming less and less in, uh, interested in. But I, um, but as I can. And, and after finishing my undergraduate degree, I was I became interested in wanting to do more research, and um, so that's where I, I ended up uh, doing my undergrad at uh, I mean my master's at UCLA, where I started working with um, scholars interested in sort of the transition debate from feudalism to capitalism, and this was around the time that subaltern studies was also. Um, emerging um, and its influence in North America and. and and so for me, the kind of connections between the debates on the transition debates from feudalism to capitalism were kind of interested me to thinking about um, South Asian history in that context. And then I ended up going to study in Britain because I'd never learned how to use archival sources um, uh, for studying South Asia. And that's what got me uh, interested in staying in Britain. Um, I worked with uh, Professor Chris Bailey uh, at Cambridge and got me to thinking about a whole range of topics in within social history, but in but also thinking about the relationship between social history and intellectual history. So, I mean, this is sort of an abbreviated version of sort of thinking about the emergence of the current project um, as a project of intellectual history, whereas my earlier project was in social history. And in large part, um, as I point out in, at the beginning of the book, um, what my first book was on uh, Western India, Gujarat specifically. And as I finished my PhD in 2001, I went back to India to do additional research. And this is when 2002 happened and the, the violence, communal violence in Gujarat. Um, so even though the first book was not about uh, communal violence, um, it's it was about the nature of violence in Western India, in Gujarat. And I was as I would read articles by activists and academics, a number of scholars, it became clear that the in interpretation of both violence and of Hindutva for me was that, that it wasn't grounded in a certain kind of work that I had been doing uh, in, in terms of understanding how the emergence of violence took off, right? And so a lot of general explanations sort of argued that you had the nonviolence of Gandhi's heartland um, to the violence of Hindutva in Gujarat. And um, I had already been reading some of Savarkar's writings, and it seemed to me that Savarkar was looming large in, in these works, I mean, but never fully articulated. And the more I started reading about Savarkar's strategies, tactics, um, his vision for creating a Hindu Rashtra, a Hindu nation, it seemed to me that there was a lot more within his writings that was influencing the direction um, and the ways in which Hindutva was unfolding in Gujarat, but also its implications for uh, the rest of India. And so that's how I sort of began to think more actively about um, writing about Savarkar as, and his writings uh, specifically, and um, thinking about how, um, how Hindutva as an idea became ubiquitous uh, over the course of the 20th century, right? And the beginning of the 21st century. So I guess that provides a sort of an abbreviated kind of arc uh, in terms of thinking about how I got to where I got to in that sense. 
Right. That's fantastic. And you mentioned, Chris Villian, I read your recent piece on uh, the Journal of South Asian Studies on Bailey's um, manuscript, which was very illuminating. Um, uh, so if, if I may ask, and of course, it's, um, again, a very abbreviated version of um, if you had to summarize briefly the book's argument for our listeners, um would it be possible? I know it's like a it's like a five hundred page book, but you know, just to sort of give a more yeah basic version of it, yeah. So in many ways, um, I I was guided by Sabarkar's definition of Hindutva in the first instance, right? And and for me, um, in sort of reading widely across you know disciplines uh, and scholars who have been writing about Hindutva, especially since two thousand two. Um, in terms of trying to understand the definition, I mean, how do we define this category? How do we define this terminology? Um, but what struck me was, um, with the exception of, I think, Sumit Sarkar, and I could be wrong, with the exception of Sumit Sarkar in an essay that he wrote maybe about 25 years ago, uh, no one had actually taken up what the sentence meant, where he, at the on page two of uh, his Essentials of Hindutva, he says, Hindutva is not a word, but a history. And, and for me, that was that that sentence kind of stuck in my head for many years in terms of how do we how do we try to understand this? Right. If we abbreviate the sentence to Hindutva is a history, um, what does that exactly mean? And so as I as I sort of was doing research on the project and thinking more actively, what I began to see was that he also had a clarification within Essentials of Hindutva. That it's not just a history, but a history in full. Um, and and this struck me as kind of uh, an odd formulation at one level. I mean, he wrote the book in English. Um, and I, as I would look at the Marathi translation or the Hindi translation, um, the translations vary, depends on who is the translator uh, in terms of how to define a history in full. Um, and it seemed to me that the that there was something within his understanding of um, what of itihas overall, of redefining itihas um, and what that meant for his larger project, um, that Hindutva could not exist without this Hindu history, and Hindu history cannot exist without this conceptualization of Hindutva, and for me that was what got me started and. And, but yet scholars who've looked at um, Savarkar's Essentials of Hindutva sort of seem to pass the sentence over as a, a confused or naive sentence, whereas I thought that it was important to actually unpack it. And so as I started reading his other works, um, what became clear was that, that he had this kind of intellectual project of trying to figure out what fullness of history meant. And fullness of history, um, he begins writing in his book on 1857 in 1909. So this comes, you know, well before uh, Essentials of Hindutva in 1923, in which he's already playing around with the category of, um, of what it means to write a full history. And what he means, he says, in at least in his 1857 book, that a full history is a history that traces events to a source to a desire, to a motive, to this kind of abstraction um, that he doesn't fully define, but it's clear by the time he's writing Essentials of Hindutva that he's, he's now using the category of being uh, with a capital B 
and ontology as as a way of trying to understand and grapple with what he means by this source. And for me, this was something that uh, again was quite interesting, right? That that there's there is something that is there that he wants to unpack. And for me, that was what got got me motivated. I mean, when we look at the look at the title essentials of Hindutva itself, um, everyone focuses on Hindutva. What does that mean? But I was also thinking about what does the word essentials mean, right? Because if we translate essentials into, um, I mean, it becomes very difficult whether essentials can be translated as tatva uh, or tatvam. Um, so if we break it down, the, you know, and so, when we think of essentials, uh, and if we break down the category of Hindutva itself, um, of Hindu and tatva, Right. So there's a whole debate on whether Hindutva, it, you know, how do we what does the word actually mean and how do we what does it mean etymologically? How does it come together? So if we break up all these words, suddenly, if we think of it, it's the essentials of the Hindu's essence. Right. Or the essence of the Hindu's essence. Right. Or the essence of the essence. And suddenly we are now in an ontological space um, that is not fully defined. Right. And Savarkar by I'm, I'm not arguing that he resolves these issues by any stretch, but he opens up a set of questions for thinking about um, the relationship between Hindutva being an ontology that he doesn't, he's not a philosopher in the sense of, of Heidegger or others who were thinking about questions of being an ontology, but he is someone who introduces a lot of categories um, but yet doesn't fully develop them completely. And in part, he is a political prisoner at this point. He, you know, when he's writing Essentials of Hindutva, he doesn't have access to books. A lot of it is done through writing in memory. And so we have these kind of fragmented thoughts to a certain extent that don't get fully unpacked. And what the book really tries to do is trace this category of a history in full um, through his historical writings. And what becomes, for me, became very interesting was the, his kind of understanding of both the Marathi Itihas, the English word of history, um, the clarification of history in full, trying to understand Hindutva as a history. And, and the book sort of ends with arguing that, you know, that Hindutva can't exist without this Hindu history, right? The, the ways... And, and in, in fact, in fact the, the constant kind of ref reference, if we think about what the kind of conversations that are going on today in the public sphere, oftentimes um, it's grounded in this history that is seen as being absolutely necessary, right? Um, and without this history, I argue that Hindutva can't exist. So in a sense, this intimate relationship that Savarkar lays out has kind of come to fruition in a certain sense, right? And the reason that history becomes so important, the terrain of history becomes so important, and the attacks on academics who write histories become so important in the 21st century within uh, within India, in fact, is because that any questioning of this kind of Hindu history is in fact an attack on Hindutva itself. So for me, this became uh, the kind of, a, if you want to think of it, a guiding kind of framework for thinking about um, the project overall in terms of focusing on Savarkar's kind of definition of Hindutva is a history in full. Right. So I have um, two questions. One off the top of my mind is um, why is it that 
Hindutva as a concept when it develops in the late 19th-20th century associates itself with the category or the discipline of history. And I'm particularly thinking um, of Chandranath Bose, whose book on Hindutva is, the subtitle of the book is Hindu Prokrita Itihash, the real history of Hindus. So the very inception when the word is used, it sort of goes towards um, the category of history. And then, of course, as you said, it, it has it with Savarkar. So what what is this? Because if Hindutva is like the being with a capital B, why does it require a history? Um, and But I'm more thinking broadly why the category of Hindutva starts gravitating towards the category of history uh, from its inception almost. Now, that's a really good question. I mean, unfortunately, I don't read Bengali, so the Bengali debates um, have, are a little bit more obscured uh, to me. But I think your point is, is, is a very good one, right? I mean, it, that, that Hindutva's conception happens with history. And I mean, one could argue that this is, you know, a period um, where, the hist- where the national imagination cannot separate itself from the historical imagination. And, you know, whether you think of Hayden White's writings on the, ninth, of the development of history or uh, if you think of, um, um, you know, sort of works that Partha Chatterjee or Dipesh Chakravarti have done regarding the development of history as a discipline, history as an idea to history as a discipline. Uh, and, and, and this is something that historians have been grappling with, whether, when, whether we look at sort of the early modernists and Sanjay Subramaniam and David Shulman's work of trying to push the historical imagination back in time or Audrey Trushke's work, pushing it back even further to uh, not even early medieval, but even perhaps in, in, into antiquity, that this is, this is a debate um, that historians have been having more recently. But I think that this is something that the nationalists themselves were grappling with, right? That, that in order to articulate India as a nation uh, that was both anti-colonial um, it was to reject the categories of British conceptions of history uh, and simultaneously staking a claim for a certain type of history uh, of the nation. And what that looked like was still in flux uh, at the end of the 19th century. And, and whether we look at even someone like Nehru's discovery of India or uh, these early, these 19th century writers, um, there is a certain kind of connection with a glorious Hindu past that is central to understanding the cr- construction of the Hindu nation. I mean, I don't want to, just to be clear, I'm not saying that I write about Nehru's kind of conceptualization and the parallels with Savarkar, but, you know, they, they bifurcate uh, politically. But, but it's still there, um, whether it's Nehru, um, you have, I mean, Ambedkar uh, has a very different um, project of writing uh, about India's history, in which it's not about the Hindu, it's about the Nagas, it's about other uh, categories as a rejection of Hindu history. So in a sense, you look at all these major figures, both of the 19th century and the early 20th century, they're all kind of grappling with this. Um, Now, the question of why Hindutva gravitates towards history, I think is probably embedded in this larger context of these figures, whether it's Bunkim or others in Bengal, who are already you know, in the 19th century, uh, trying to unpack this relationship, um, trying to reclaim the category of the Hindu, redefine the category of the Hindu. Um, um, I mean, Savarkar is not simply refining and redefining Hindu, but he's also rejecting the category of Hinduism. So you have 
this interesting kind of conceptual battle that's taking place in terms of uh, staking a, a new claim. And, and Hinduism in the late 19th, early 20th century was seen as a, as a British constructed category, an Orientalist category that needed to be rejected. Um, and so I think it emerges out of this kind of intellectual milieu of debates on nationalism, of history, reclaiming certain categories, um, rejecting other categories. Um, and I think there's a lot more work to be done, I think, especially in the Bengali context um, for thinking about. Uh, and I think what we'll find out is Chandranath uh, Basu wasn't the first to kind of use the category. I mean, there, you know, and that there was already this kind of grappling with these categories um, and, and he also kind of articulated as against Christianity, against the Brahmo Samaj, against all sorts of transformations that are taking place within the question of dharma overall uh, in Bengal. And so I think for those reasons, I think there is another kind of a prehistory of um, Hindutva that needs to be written as well. Right. So... Um... Can I just pick on that one thing you said, and uh, if you could elaborate that on a bit on Savarkar's rejection of Hinduism, and so what's what is his idea of Hinduism vis-a-vis Hindutva? So, now he raises, I mean, in, in essentials of Hindutva, I mean, he raises a couple of interesting points. I mean, he begins with a much more moderated framing in which he says that Hinduism is an aspect of Hindutva. Um, it is part of Hindutva. Uh, it is not the same. They're not synonyms. Then he also argues that maybe um, a better way to understand uh, Hindutva itself is to use the category of Hinduness. Now, when that's tra- translated into the vernacular, it becomes Hindu pun, but Hindu pun is not Hindutva. Hinduness is not Hindutva. Um, and so, but by the end of the book, what becomes clear is that. He um, is much more critical of the category of Hinduism, um, where he argues that perhaps Hinduism as a category needs to be rejected because it is an Orientalist category, because it is a category constructed by, um, you know, European scholars who wanted to create an ism. He says he's opposed to all isms um, and isms for he says, you know, isms are like dogmas. They're, you know, they're partial. They're not. Uh, he finds them very limiting. Um, he is, of course, much more interested in, the, in rethinking the category of Hindu dharm uh, as a substitute for Hindu, Hinduism. Uh, and so you begin to see that if, if you read his English writings, then Hinduism oftentimes appears. But if you read his Marathi or Hindi, Hindi translations, or even his Marathi writings, it's all about Hindu dharm, right? So in a sense, he's staking a claim for dharm as a way of rethinking uh, what these larger category, these larger practices, rituals, and textual traditions that that w- would were classified as Hinduism uh, as a way of reclaiming them and using Hindutva as a larger category uh, for reclaiming it, right? And in part, that's kind of what's happening today. I mean, I I find it really interesting where. Um, at one level, many of the Hindutva supporters today will say that Hinduism is Hindutva. And I of, often ask uh, them that, you know, how, I mean, are what would you say about Savarkar's interpretation? And oftentimes they don't know about Savarkar's interpretation, right? And and as we sort of think about the, the ways in which these concepts and categories have changed over the 21st century, what we realize 
or at least I realize is that, you know, that there is a certain kind of critique of Savarkar among the Hindutvadis that they don't want to actually articulate fully as well, right? So you have these categories aren't fixed um, either, even today, um, but they're constantly in flux. But for Savarkar, um, there was a, this was one way to stake a claim on Hindutva of defining Hindutva moving forward by rejecting the kind of Orientalist uh, and Oriental research on Hinduism overall, right? So it, it's kind of embedded within that kind of framework for him. Right, I see. So um, so if I may ask, and like, pardon my ignorance, I have not read any of Savarkar's reading, except the one that circulates on social media and whatnot, because, and we'll come to that, like why he's such a galvanizing figure now. But um, I have a question about if, like when Savarkar speaks of Hindutva history, is he essentially thinking of it in the same vein as many of his previous thinkers thought to the glorious past, the age of darkness that uh, with the advent of Islam? And then depending on your position, either British rule is a way to go back to that glorious past, the rediscovery of greatness, or it's further decadence and the Hindu should rise. So does he believe in this tripartite sort of uh, idea of history? So he actually, um, uh, he, so he actually has a, he gets rid of the second category that James Mill came up with, right? So, um, that the category of the, whether you want to call it, you know, the, the ancient medieval modern or British Muslim, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hindu Muslim British categories that, uh, were used for so long. And uh, I mean, Romila Topper writes about sort of these, um, uh, this framing, um, which, which I thought was really kind of captured the essence of the argument where, you know, that scholars have continually borrowed this tripartite time, you know, time period uh, in the history, in the writing of history, even well into the 20th century, uh, without rethinking the categories. Um, Sabarker, interestingly enough, and I mean, more recently, right, we have the construction of early modern, uh, medieval, early medieval, and suddenly the categories have kind of exploded in terms of now we have to rethink. But Sabarker himself begins to rethink this in the 1960s, um, in which he, uh, in his last book, um, uh, the English translation is Six Glorious Epochs of Indian History, in which he says what we, there are only two periods of Indian history. There, um, you have uh, ancient and you have modern. There is no medieval. There is there is no Muslim period of in, of, of history, and in that kind of uh, discursive move, gets rid of the second category that James Mill and all these historians of of, of South Asia had been using for so long, and arguing that all we ha- we we have to understand it from antiquity to about 700 uh, CE and from 700 CE to today. And that, those are the only two categories. Um, and, and for him, uh, that was one way to start moving away from writing about the Muslim period of Indian history, right? And so this is kind of his kind of moment of erasure, if you want to think of it that way, uh, and arguing that, um, that that even though this is a period where most scholars have argued that this was a decline of the Hindu, he wants to resurrect this as a period where Hindus thrived, right? That this was a, that we, that modern history, if we look at the arc of modern history, um, Hindus have, you know, 
been victorious. Um, and it's and and for him, it also lays. It, it's also important for another reason, which is that he lays down an argument that the presence of a Muslim and the presence of a Christian that remains in India is a sign that the war is not over. Right. So it's this kind of perpetual future war that he's, he's laying a certain kind of argument for moving forward, which is also going to be part of modern history, right? That, so, the his, so this kind of reclaiming of, um, of history's periods and re-periodizing Indian history allows him to then claim a certain kind of new history of, uh, for Hindus that had been kind of marginalized by the British, by the secular historians, by historians overall. And that kind of becomes the ways in which he kind of uh, stakes a claim uh, for these kind of for this kind of writing of history. Oh, that's interesting. That's um, very interesting. So, um, so if I were to um, ask a particular thing about something in your title really struck me, which is Hindutva and violence, and how does violence as a category emerge in Savarkar's writing? Uh, of course, we know we are seeing the fallout of that in our recent lives now but in in Savarkar's writing what's your use of the term violence really uh, struck out to me so I want to know a bit more about that yeah um so I think in, in sort of trying to think through what are the in, in coming up with the title I mean one of the challenges was trying to figure out what are the main things that Savarkar is writing about what are the main concepts and for me, uh, in reading his work, I mean, it, w- it was Hindutva and violence. I mean, these are the two main. Um, now, violence, I mean, for me, you know, he always has these kind of narratives of vengeance, uh, of, of Hindu vengeance, the necessity of Hindu vengeance, uh, the necessity of Hindu cruelty, the necessity of um, uh, that Hindus recognizing another Hindu as a victim and then perpetuating a certain act of violence against whether it's a Muslim or a Christian or a foreigner of any kind. Right. So, so for him, this is, this, this is a repetition that appears throughout his historical writings is this category, these categories of vengeance and cruelty. Um, He, and, and so for me, this was, and thinking about, and then he also has a a, a very specific passage in essentials of Indutva in which he says, um, that violence is always, or vengeance is always perpetuated by those who have not, who were the original victims. And, and for me, this struck as very important um, in terms of thinking about how Hindu history is written, right? That, that Hindus were the victims. And so therefore, all acts of vengeance and violence and cruelty are legitimate acts. But there's a there's a tension in Essentials of Hindutva in which he actually argues that it's the the original Hindus who were the co- original colonizers of what he of this landmass called Hindustan for him, right? And that struck me as really interesting that he he has he uses the the the, the Aryan invasion theory and revises it. Um, for his own purposes and arguing that these Aryans were the original Hindus. And when they moved into the Gangetic Plain and when they moved into the subcontinent, one of the things that they're doing is that they are conquering these lands uh, and converting the original inhabitants 
to becoming Hindus. And it struck me that that, that formulation, the, this kind of history of vengeance, suddenly has a bit of tension in it because if, if the Hindus were formed in the act of colonizing, and the and the both as the colonizer and the colonized, right? So for him, the Hindu is the colonizer, and those who are being colonized become Hindus as well. So you have this interesting dichotomy that he raises, right? That you have the Hindu as both the perpetrator and the victim who is in that kind of dialectic is being formed. So the Hindu is actually being formed either as those who are inflicting violence or, or suffering violence. Um, and this is something that I thought was really interesting that he uh, really unpacks uh, in Essentials of Hindutva, that Hindus were the original colonizers. And the, the original inhabitants were then converted into becoming Hindus, right? And for me, this was kind of something that struck out that 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 the formation of the Hindu, um, according to Savarkar, right? Not according to me, according to Savarkar, is uh, in the act of violence itself, right? Um, that the Hindu becomes a Hindu in through the act of violence, and this theme continues throughout his writings. So he talks about periods where you have other, um, you know, in antiquity, especially you have the Huns and the Shakas and others who are coming into India. And what Hindus are able to do successfully is to assimilate them and and convert them into Hindus. Um, and, and for him, this becomes where the constant tension is the conflict between the foreigner and the Hindu and the Hindu winning out every time. And in the fact, converting all these individuals to Hinduism or assimilating them into Hinduism. And this is kind of, for me, was very interesting, right? So, so in, a, in essence, and then he also has a discussion later on where um, almost sort of like a Benedict Anderson idea of reading the newspaper as reaffirming one's nation. Here, Sabarkar has these examples of reading the newspaper and reaffirming oneself as a Hindu that when a Hindu reads a newspaper and reads about a case of violence against a Hindu in, say, a different part of India, and then perpetuates a random act of violence as vengeance, um, that in and of itself is the confirmation that he is a Hindu, right? And so for me, this was something that was very kind of struck me as really interesting and, um, and quite important in trying to understand um, the centrality of violence that Sabarkar is trying to insert um, with the category of the Hindu. Um, and then he also, I mean, and I think this is also another reason why the Bhagavad Gita is so important for, uh, for Sabarkar himself, is, is, is the tension of uh, how to understand the Bhagavad Gita's message, right? And I mean, he and Gandhi and... Um, uh, 1909 meet for the first time and their discussion is about violence in the Ramayan um, and the and violence and their later meetings on violence in the Bhagavad Gita. And do we take this as literal or not? And the category and for Savarkar, it's really trying to insert that that the Hindu ontologically is a, is a violent being. Right. Um, and it's a reaction not only to Gandhi, but also to the Buddha to Buddha and, and other um, Jainism and so on, um, that, that the Hindu is actually a violent being. And what we have to do is reclaim that. And once we can understand our history 
this Hindu history that he's trying to perpetuate, what we'll see is that Hindus have always been violent in the past and Hindus will continue to be violent into the future, right? And once we, as Hindus, understand this for him, this is the moment where um, the Hindu, the true Hindu becomes uh, in, uh, sort of completed in that sense as, as an ontological being, right? So suddenly you have um, uh, the Hindu realizing that he is a violent being um, and does not need to shy away from the category of violence. And so the title for me was having violence in the title, in a sense, was kind of central to Savarkar's thought, right? That, that at one level, he's trying to reinterpret the category of Hindutva, but he is also rethinking how he imagines violence to be, right? Um, and violence is not simply violence. Violence, he says, has to be perpetuated in a cruel way, right? That is the ultimate form of, uh, of a Hindu's behavior in seeking vengeance is to be is to perpetuate cruelty. Um, and so that's, I, I think, um, something that is also not often discussed is the category of cruelty that Savarkar really is interested in kind of unpacking. Wow, my mind is blown a bit. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a very compelling explanation. I have one clarification and then I'll move on to the Gita question since it came up. One is, um, so Savarkar was thinking that uh, Hindus uh, came from uh, Central Asia or, or was he thinking that they're from the northwest of India but just moved Ga- towards Gangetic Plain? Um, I mean, so he uses the category of Aryan um, and he doesn't fully unpack it I mean, in Essentials of Hindutva, I mean, he sort of talks about um, the Aryan tribes um, residing in, you know, in sort of today's Northwest um, India, Pakistan, uh, Northwest South Asia, but he doesn't fully unpack the the debate about the Aryan uh, invasion theory. But, but implicit to the argument is that you have these tribes that are then moving into the Gangetic Plain. Right. And and then colonizing these territories um, and converting these individuals to becoming Hindus. Right. So the Aryan becomes the Hindu in the act of conversion and in the act of violence and the act of colonization um, of this large landmass. Right. And and again, for him, the moment of completion, interestingly enough, is in the Ramayan. For him, that is when the Hindu nation for the first time is completed. Right. And this is kind of an interesting um, formulation. And it's important for him because it also happens in the act of, you know, that it's the seeking vengeance, Ram seeking vengeance, um, the slaying of Ravan. Um, and that's that is when the Hindu nation for Savarkar, he says, for the first time becomes completed. Um, and I think that's why the Shara or Vijay Dashmi is so important is that every Hindu can participate in that slaying of Ravan as, a, as an annual ritual uh, in perpetuating this kind of completion of the Hindu nation, right? And so that's why the Ramayana and Ayodhya and all these um, become so central, um, I, I argue, um, for thinking about kind of contemporary Hindutva as well, because, I mean, he lays out these kind of, the centrality of Ram's act of slaying Ravan as central to thinking about how the Hindu nation is formed, right? I mean, it's, it's combining a whole range of from the epics uh, into thinking about kind of contemporary history, but it's these themes that are constantly evoked 
as throughout his writings, um, and and you sort of see it evoked even today um, uh, in India. And so my next question, just building on that, would be on the textual praxis. So, um, so for Savarkar, uh, the essence of the violent being or Hindutva's essential relationship to violence can be traced in textual paths. So there are texts, according to him at least, from where you can derive that. And the Ramayana is, of course, it seems a big thing for him, as is the Gita. Uh, does he add a few more or does he work around? Because this time, of course, you have various interpretations of the Gitas and whether, you know, that it's a it's a conflict between your inner goodness and badness and whatnot. And of course, there's a literal interpretation of the Gita, which is that, you know, it's a call for action and we have the Aurobind and everything going on. Um, but so, yeah, I would like to know, like, what kind of textual configuration is Savarkar coming up with from where you can find um, the essence of the um, Hindu being, so to speak? Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a good question because if we look at essentials of Hindutva in 19, you know, again, it's an earlier work, 1923, what we see is there, um, a part of what he's doing in the middle of the book is um, trying to find uh, texts that talk about the category Hindu or any of its kind of derivatives, uh, like Hindu pun, Hindu van, you know, uh, and Hindi um, and whole range of categories that he talks about. And, and he looks at um, texts dating back to, I'd say about the um, 12th century even, and then taking selections or passages. Um, some of these are Marathi texts, some of these are Modi texts, some of these are, um, um, he's very interested in the Vishnu Puran and um, the Puranas as well. Um, so he has this kind of, and it's not really clear what the method is there, right? I mean, he talks about the need for turning to vernacular sources. Uh, he doesn't use that category, but I, that's, you know, to turn to these vernacular sources as a way of showing that the word exists, these categories existed historically. Now, again, he's writing this oftentimes from memory. So this is another, you know, he doesn't have access to books in 1923. But if we fast forward to his Hindu Padpad Shahi or, um, you know, Six Glorious Epochs of Indian History, Saha Pane, I mean, what is in what or even his kind of a lot of his vernacular writings, I mean, he is um, pulling various um, narratives and stories. I mean, the most uh, as a way of arguing the essence of violence uh, for the Hindu as well. Right. So um, it's not a. You know, we're trying to look at it as scholars thinking about, okay, what is his scholarly apparatus? What is his methodology? Oftentimes, uh, he says he uses conjecture. Oftentimes, he says he uses oriental research and tries to read against the grain of orientalist research. Other times, um, you know, he's reading against uh, the contemporary historians of the time period as well, uh, especially Maratha historians. So it's kind of an eclectic mix of sources, um, but. Coming back to the specific question, I mean, um, he's very interested, for example, in the story of Prahlad right now, whether it's because Gandhi is also writing about Prahlad is not clear, uh, but Savarkar is very interested in, in the Prahlad story. And he writes about this in his last book. And he points out that 
um, that that Prahlad should serve as a warning for all Hindus, right? That Prahlad's efforts of resisting his father's uh, violence through nonviolence was not effective. Um, because in the end, Vishnu, in the form of Narsim, had to come down and save Prahlad uh, by killing Prahlad's father, uh, but not just simply killing Prahlad's father, right? He brutalizes Prahlad's father. Um, and it's, it's that form of uh, violence, vengeance, and cruelty that should serve as an example for Hindus on how to uh, fight an unjust fight, right? But what's also the, the story there is that Prahlad's father is, uh, is not a foreigner, right? It's for a foreigner in Savarkar's category. He is a Hindu himself. And so he opens the door there for now talking about the use of vengeance, violence, cruelty against other Hindus as well, right? And that is something that he writes about at the end, at the end of his career about the, the necessity and the need for not, Hindus not only using vengeance and cruelty and violence against those they see as sort of foreign outsiders who have now, um, you know, um, victimized Hindus, but also against other Hindus who are victimizing Hindus, right? So it, it opens another kind of possibility by turning to the textual tradition to, um, to, to make these kinds of claims as well. But if you read his writings, I mean, he has these kind of snippets, these anecdotal kind of passages that he'll include in there as a way of talking about and grappling with how to conceptualize violence overall. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. And so if, so of course the Prahlad story is uh, sort of the bedrock uh, of uh, um, of how he conceptualizes as it's a Gita, but I'm a bit interested to know on the Ramayana, especially because of the legacy it has left. Um, because the Ramayana is, I mean, in a way a story of individual vengeance, right? It, it's mostly um, Rama is compelled to for um, for individual reasons. Of, of course, Ramayana has the side of the fact that uh, it's a story that also is, it begins with about compassion. Like if, if Valmiki does not show compassion, nobody writes the epic for the for killing of the bird. So while the Mahabharata, on the other hand, has a very specific message about violence and being, um, and early 19th century, or I think late 19th century discussions of the Ramayana were a lot 
motivated on what individual subjectivity, violence, questions of gender. How does he make this about a question about the nation and about, uh, you know, seeking vengeance as a Hindu? I don't think, I mean, it's a really good question. And I, I'm trying to think whether he offers an explanation or just states it as a fact. I mean, you know, I mean, and I mean, that's part of the challenge of reading Savarkar as well. I think that um, we have, uh, he, he leaves a lot more things open-ended um, and fragmentary and fragmented um, without full explanations um, for a lot of his you know, work. And so for me, that's been part of the challenge of writing about Savarkar as well, um, that, that these kind of questions, I mean, the specific question that you're asking, I mean, I, I, off the top of my head, I cannot remember if he actually, besides in Essentials of Indutva, um, unpacks this further, right? I mean, he leaves it as um, leaves it as just a statement of fact that this is where the Hindu nation was formed, right? And and in a sense, that's part of the innovation as well, right? That is is taking these texts and these textual traditions and and interpreting them for a specific contemporary moment at that time as a way of, of, of sort of reframing some of the categories and, 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 and the ways in which these texts were read. Um, and oftentimes it's not clear, uh, I mean, for many decades, whether they had great popularity or not, some of these interpretations. But if we fast forward over the course of a longer period, over a hundred year period, we begin to see that yes, I mean, some of these uh, arguments have certainly resonated um, uh, in the popular imagination and thinking about the Ramayana now. Um, right. And so I, I don't know if I fully yeah. answered that question. No, no, but no, I think I, that, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of these maneuvers sort of, as time goes on, becomes um, an important part of how Hindutva starts. And of course, post-Ayodhya, it's... Um, yeah, so one thing that I found very interesting um, in the introduction is about your discussion on what Savarkar read um, and what were his influences. Um, and you talk a bit about whether he may or may not have read Heidegger, most likely not, but are aware, aware of each other. Um, but I'm just uh, curious to know broadly, what is Savarkar's influence, both uh, the Indian writers, to which we have a sense and, his, and the textual traditions, but both a bit like um, his European or sort of global influence. I hate the term, but, you know, here we are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think, um, just to clarify, uh, I I only included the Heidegger. Um, I mentioned the Heidegger stuff, and I also say that probably Heidegger and Savarkar were not aware of each other's existence. Although, although it is possible that Heidegger may have been aware of Savarkar's existence um, later on, because... Savarkar's 1857 book is translated by the German Foreign Office um, uh, in 1940 uh, by the Nazis. Um, the Nazi newspaper, uh, the main newspaper that um, uh, has a profile of Savarkar, because Savarkar is also writing about um, celebrating the, the German colon, you know, taking over the Sudetenland. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time in the German uh, Foreign Office archives, and you, you know, the German intelligence um, is monitoring Savarkar's stuff as well. So you, you, they do have an awareness of Savarkar, but I mean, they're also monitoring other Indian nationalists. But they're certainly aware of Savarkar's presence and what he's writing uh, uh, at that time. So, 
so that's why in the introduction I sort of say it's, it's likely they they didn't know of each other's existence. Um, but at another level, Heidegger may have heard of Sovereker, but it's not clear. It was a sort of a small point, um, really about thinking uh, about the parallels of two individuals in very different parts of the world who are thinking about the relationship of being and history in very different ways simultaneously in the same time period. Um, but I, but what I spend a lot more time discussing in terms of Sabrika's global, um, the influences of global thinkers, and it's not just on Sabrika, um, in the 19th century, I mean, Mazzini was very important, um, for many thinkers, uh, from Surendranath Banerjee to um, Bipin Chandrapal to Gandhi to you know uh, Lajpat Rai to many other um, major thinkers, um, and Savarkar's first book is actually on uh, Giuseppe Mazzini and the need for um, Indians to read or specifically Maharashtrians to read um, um, Mazzini's life. Um, uh, the stories of his uh, um, of fighting imperialism of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the creation of Italy uh, from principalities to um, to thinking about um, the revolutionary potential of Mazzini um, uh, in Maharashtra, right? So, and what I argue is that um, Mazzini's book, uh, in fact, is very influential in Savarkar's conceptualization. Um, in um, his book on 1857, where he's much more explicit about it. But throughout his career, um, the categories that Savarkar uses oftentimes are really building upon um, a lot of what Mazzini was writing uh, and Mazzini was thinking. Um, and, and so in the first part of the book, I, I sort of unpack that um, and try to trace some of the explicit links um, between Savarkar and Mazzini. Um, but at the same time, Savarkar is also re, reinterpreting some of Mazzini's categories uh, within Indian co concepts or concepts in Marathi uh, for thinking about Swaraj, for thinking about Swadesh, for thinking about how there are, you know, the limits of Swaraj movements in the United States, limits of Swarajji movements in Europe and so on. So there is this kind of... Um, using these categories, but then redefining them, re redefining them in the vernacular for an Indian audience as well. But I would say that more than any other figure, at least early in Savarkar's career, um, it's Mazzini who um, is much more prominent than anyone else. But simultaneously, when Savarkar's in the Andamans, um, we know that he had access to a library that had about 2000 books. Uh, we know that um, he requests uh, the writings of figures like um, Herbert Spencer. Um, he requests um, a whole range of uh, writings of various Indian philosophers, uh, various Indian thinkers, uh, Vivekananda being one. But again, um, the, the Andaman records are incomplete. I mean, we know, I mean, unfortunately, we know, we know the dates that Savarkar checks out books and returns books. We don't know which books he checks out and returns, right? So that creates part of the difficulty of trying to interpret what he was fully reading. But from his letters in the Andamans, we know, for example, he's keeping up with what's going on um, on global events. Um, there are discussions um, about Germany. There are discussions about uh, what's going on in Britain, uh, what's going on in Russia, and so on. 
Um, but he is someone, even towards the, um, the end of his career, he writes an essay in which um, it's sort of a programmatic for what Hindu organizers should do uh, after his death. Um, it's sort of an interesting short essay in which he sort of says, you know, I'm at the end of my life and uh, I I've always wanted to put down what should happen after I die. And so this is kind of his last kind of uh, statement of what the future should look like. And one of the things that he mentions there is that, uh, that Hindu organizers should read their world history, right? That they should read about global events. They, that these global events should be central to their thinking. They should create publishing houses. Um, they should engage with a diverse range of ideas and thoughts. And so again, I think that's really kind of interesting that he has um, this kind of programmatic of, of thinking about oneself as an intellectual within this kind of framework as a Hindu organizer, um, which requires one to read broadly and widely, right? Which is something that he was uh, certainly engaged with during his lifetime. Now, unfortunately, because of the circumstances of his um, life in a certain way, um, we often, we don't know uh, many of the things that he did read. Um, and oftentimes he doesn't cite, he, he he claims he's not interested in writing academic work, right? So he's not following conventions of citation or, and so on. Um, but it's clear that he is building upon a whole range of uh, textual texts and textual traditions. I mean, for me, the most interesting is, of course, his kind of deep uh, connection with an admiration of uh, Christian texts and Christianity. Uh, and something that he uh, frequently writes about, that, you know, he was deeply moved by the life of Jesus Christ. And um, it, and you find references and passages to all sorts of, there are all sorts of biblical references and passages throughout his writings. Um, um, so we know, and he, he talks about the fact that there was a period uh, of his incarceration where the the jailer refused to give him any books except the Bible. So he would read the Bible, uh, you know, very carefully. So you have these kind of, you know, uh, a range of thought, a range of ideas, uh, a range of concepts that he's playing with. The challenge as a, someone working on Savarkar is that we don't know exactly what he's reading and when he's yeah. reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, That was my uh, sort of sense, too. I have a question that I had written, um, but I forgot to ask uh, in the introduction. Is in, Savar in Savarkar's idea of hi history, in this Hindu history, um, how does he conceptualize caste? Um, where does it fall in his this grand scheme of um, historical imagination? So that is, um, so he deals with this in, in multiple ways. I mean, one in conceptual ways and one and another in, in sort of practical ways, right? And uh, so in conceptually how he deals with this, um, is in, again, in Essentials of Hindutva, he points, he argues um, about the, he has a whole section on blood, on Hindu blood. And he says that, um, you know, that so, that Hindu blood, like all blood is actually tainted. It's polluted all. Uh, and he argues that the, he says, there's a passage where he says, you know, the sexual urges of mankind have been more powerful than any prophet. And so he he's 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 very clear that Hindus don't have pure blood. 
But he says no one has pure blood, right? That all we can say is that all humans, so it's almost, one could argue a humanist kind of take on how to interpret blood is that we all have human blood and all human blood is tainted and polluted, right? We can't talk about the purity of blood and therefore all races um, are also polluted and tainted, right? So there's no purity of race, there's no purity of blood. So he has that kind of analytical argument about blood. Um, and he talks about whether it's Adivasis, whether it's untouchables, whether it's um, various caste groupings and so on, um, that what we, what we all have to see is that we all share Hindu blood. And so he makes an argument for all we have to do is we have to sort of feel that we have the same blood. So he makes this kind of analytical argument about all blood being polluted and tainted and then makes an argument about and about the affect, about affectively, all Hindus should see each other as Hindus first um, and, and recognize that we have blood that we share. Now, how do both of those things fit together, right? I mean, he's, but he says the way he rationalizes it is that, um, that there's no society in the world that argues for the creation of a human state. Um, that all humans belong in the same world, we it's constantly uh, refusing. And if you argue that you're a nationalist, you immediately are arguing for partiality. And as a consequence, arguing for a certain kind of interpretation of, of blood, right? So there's no purity of blood. So he says that when I argue about how I feel as a Hindu in terms of my pollution and purity, um, that, is, is only an affective argument, right? And so he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that, right? That I share blood with people from all castes and they share blood with me and we should not talk about purity in that, in that way. We should just talk about the purity of Hindu blood, not, the, not talk about uh, pollution and purity in, in sort of a different way. So that's part of the explanation. But if you fast forward to the 1930s, uh, when Savarkar is under house arrest in Ratnagiri in Maharashtra, one of the things that um, the only thing he's allowed to do um, when he, he's allowed to do social reform. Now, social reform by the British is set up where he can he can give lectures and he can have interdining with uh, low caste or um, untouchable groups. Um, and he can uh, also go to temples. So he begins to start arguing for temple entry and interdining um, with uh, low caste and, and, and uh, Dalit groups at that time. And this is, you can imagine that this is also the period when Ambedkar is taking off, right? So Savarkar and Ambedkar are uh, in, in a certain sense competing, if you wanna think of it that way, for the same constituency. And there is a passage, there's one passage in Savarkar's a letter um, in which he says that, yes, I'm talking about uh, the equality of castes for the purpose of Hindutva, right? Um, and, and for him, that becomes the centrality, right? That, it, that Hindutva is the priority, not necessarily um, getting rid of the caste system itself. Um, so you have, you know, a, and then Savarkar also, you know, has um, in his other works, 
the kind of celebration of the Brahmin spirit as being as being the most powerful and revolutionary spirit um, within this kind of thinking about the Hindu nation. Um, so whether it's he has a whole discussion of Mangal Pandey in 1857 as this kind of idealized revolutionary who's the Brahmin, or in his um, uh, autobiographical writings, he has kind of this kind of genealogy of revolutionaries who are all Chitpavan Brahmins in Maharashtra, and he belongs to that lineage. So you have both of these things happening simultaneously, right? You have the celebration of the Brahmin as the idealized revolutionary, as the idealized Hindu subject, the idea of uh, interdining and inter um, and temple entry, um, even intermarriage. He has in his brothers in letters to his brother talking about intermarriage of intercaste marriages um, uh, among Hindus. But this is also creating a major rupture among uh, Orthodox and conservative Hindus in Maharashtra at this time. Um, so you have these Savarkar meetings and gatherings that the British are allowing to happen in the 1930s um, under the guise of social reform, but you have members of the Sanatan Dharm, for example. You have these Sanatanis who are throwing chapels and rocks at Savarkar's processions, arguing that Savarkar should not be allowed to speak because he is hurting the sentiments of Orthodox Hindus. So the world that he is occupying at this point is grappling between all of these things happening simultaneously, right? That, that he's celebrating the Brahmin spirit as the revolutionary spirit. He's arguing for temple entry and interdining and intermarriage. And then it's simultaneously he's being attacked by Orthodox Hindus who think that he, that this idea of Hindutva is a violation of uh, sort of Brahmanic practices and so on. Um, so that kind of lays out some of, and then of course the blood discussion of both both the purity of blood and the and the idea of that all blood is polluted simultaneously. Um, he has an entire text on, um, uh, I mean, I guess it could be roughly translated as breaking jati, right, breaking caste. Um, but again, in the end, for him, the main purpose is breaking caste to reconceptualizing the Hindu within this category for the purpose of creating Hindutva, right? Uh, in the name of Hindutva. Right. We are already past one hour. I just don't realize that. Um, um, I'll, I'll quickly, um, I have a couple of questions about why Savarkar is important. Now we'll get to that. I have this one question on the book and then we can finally wrap it up on the book. And then, uh, so, so Savarkar has this discussion on purity of blood and uh, uh, so on and so forth. And I'm also thinking, right, this idea uh, this very contested term of Hindu revivalism, something goes back, going back to the late 19th century, which comes through questions of reform and whether ideas of age of consent and should um, something like uh, colonial legislation be applied to the Hindu women body, right? And that's from where we have Tonika Shorkar and, of course, Partha Jatiji and all that discussion on uh, nationhood and women and sort of, I mean you could say that the revivalist tendencies start from that anti-legislation movement. Uh, so what is what is the role of the Hindu woman in Savarkar's, this broad Hindutva history? What role are they supposed to uh, play? And what is his take on this uh, questions of gender? Um, again, I, I think 
again, it's an important question that he doesn't fully articulate. So the silence of his own silence in a certain sense is part of the answer to some of this, but it's not complete silence, right? I mean, he has uh, discussions of the idealized um, Hindu woman um, that falls into two categories, interestingly, right? I mean, one category is of the brave warrior. Um, so like uh, Rani by Laksh, you know, um, Lakshmi of Jhansi, um, he has, uh, I mean, she's the idealized version of this. Um, he uses her as an example. Um, he says not only in his 1857 book, but throughout his career, he turns to her example to tell men to behave bravely as brave warriors, right? So, I mean, so he talks about um, uh, some Marathi women who were, uh, involved as in ships, um, but these are all passing references. They're very few and far between uh, throughout his writings. Um, he does have, I mean, an, an entire text on um, reading the Manusmriti uh, for thinking about um, the role of women. But again, it's a very textual reading uh, regarding the text in ancient India. But again, but Simultaneously, he also uh, valorizes he, uh, women who commit sati, for example, right, in uh, as late as the 1960s, um, and um, as as an act of purity and as an act of bravery, right. But he doesn't, in terms of his historical actors that he's writing about, right, because I mean, the book really is focusing on. Savarkar's conceptualization of these, these, these historical actors who are idealized Hindus, um, there we don't see very much discussion of, of, of this that's, that's there. However, that doesn't mean that he's not uh, articulating um, discussions about um, gender period. I mean, the, the main thing he is articulating in terms of what we would today think of, you know, his uh, categories of gender is in thinking about the Hindu man. Um, and again, if, we've, if you've read Murnalini uh, Sinha's uh, book on masculinity in Bengal, I mean, this would add a, another dimension to it in which the Hindu is both uh, the masculine and the effeminate Hindu, right? So for Savarkar, the biggest problem is the presence of effeminate Hindus um, who are preventing uh, and limiting the creation of the Hindu nation, right? And and again, for him, one could think of that he's thinking about Gandhi in this context throughout his writings, um, in, especially uh, in his in the 1950s and 60s, that it's it's the image of Gandhi who he is turning to and sort of arguing that it's the effeminate Hindu has, that has caused the the problems of the Hindu nation in, in, to, into coming into being. Right um, in his earlier work, it was it was the Buddha and the Buddhists who he says were, you know, the problem. Uh, if you read almost every book at the ending, he has the fit, talks about the failure of different revolutions and different movements, whether it's in 1857 or his book on the Marathas. It's always the effeminate Hindu is the problem, right? Um, and, and yet um, for him, the, the contrast is always um, the Rani of Jhansi, who's seen as sort of the masculine woman, um, who's able to conquer this kind of effeminization 
um, that's happening with Hindus, right? So this is a constant thread. The whole issue of of thinking about uh, gender is a constant thread that exists throughout his writings, but it's targeting sort of uh, the the Hindu man as opposed to sort of really unpacking the the meaning of gender vis-a-vis thinking about um, the place of the Hindu woman. Um, so the one, I mean, this the set of writings on the Manusmriti, I is 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 something that. Um, I haven't fully unpacked in in this project, um, but it certainly I, I do discuss it, and it's it's something that um, I think requires a lot more work. I mean, at this point, I mean, Savarkar has essays on um, has an essay uh, a woman's beauty and duty, in which he's arguing against uh, the need for women's education um, that there are certain kinds of uh, gender roles. Um, that need to be perpetuated. And again, he's building a lot of this from even Thilluk and others who are making similar kinds of arguments uh, at the end of the 19th century. But like I said, I mean, I think the simple silence for a lot of these categories is is kind of indicative of um, the kind of masculine uh, Hindu Rashtra that he's thinking about as opposed to um, uh, unpacking the specificity of the role of women in the making of Hindu history. Right. Um, so I'll just move on to a bit on the presentist context as we wrap up. Um, and of course, Savarkar is now an ever-present figure in the Indian public life. There's a lot of discussion on TV shows, on social media. There's a lot of books being written on him um, in, in the public life. Um, so a lot of, I, I don't want to use the word, but a, a lot of non-academic books on Savarkar have flooded the market. Uh, over the past few years, and he, he in the, in the way the historical commemoration of the Indian nation is going through as of now, he's an important aspect. So, so I have two questions. One is, which you say a bit on the introduction, but how difficult is it to write on a figure like him from an academic perspective, given there's so much noise about him? It, it's not like writing about even an Aurobindo who has uh, had a uh, various shades but it's there's not so much noise for example right but there's so much noise on Savarkar um and and why is it that as um as Hindutva is gaining ground politically and socially uh, Savarkar is tending to become uh, tending to be as the new sort of a replacement figure on how the Indian nation is now imagined uh, when we, we were kids I I I don't remember ever th- hearing about Savarkar in like a Independence Day or a Republic Day commemoration, but now he's an ever-present figure, right? So, I mean, it's it's a both ways. So more a bit on why has he become, instead of someone else, this uh, new image? And how difficult is an academic for you to write a book on him with all this noise? Well, I guess, I guess there's multiple ways to kind of address, I mean, because you've asked, I think, if three or four things there. Um, I, I think, so Savarkar's marginalization, if we want to use that framing, um, in part has a lot to do with the links with, I think, Gandhi's murder, right? I mean, I, I don't think that's undeniable at this point. Um, now, even though he was acquitted, um, you have 
the kind of associations that were per persisting um, in the post-colonial period um, for most of the 20th century. But I think, I mean, for me, the, the, the problem has, um, the problem really has to do with, uh, there's a certain kind of, and I, and I point this out in, in the book as well, uh, there's a certain kind of epistemic refusal to engage with Savarkar. Um, there's an epistemic refusal to engage with Savarkar, not only on the Hindu right, but also on the left, the Indian left. Um, and, um, and I think this is where someone like uh, G.P. Deshpande's writings on Savarkar, which I find uh, very compelling um, to think with, is that, you know, that Savarkar's ideas have really not been explored. Um, Savarkar, the man... Uh, right, Savarkar's life has been explore, uh, explored, um, and you sort of have a, what you know a kind of uh, these popular histories, sort of you know whether it's Amar Chitrakata moving forward, um, uh, Dhananjay Kir uh, moving forward. You have kind of these this desire to write some popular histories, and part of that is what you're seeing unfold, right? Is that you, a, a certain kind of resurrection of Savarkar as a historical subject who, you know, I mean, whether it's the BJP or uh, various Hindutva groups argue that he has been marginalized. But what's also interesting is there, this is something that GP Deshpande wrote about before he died, that they still don't choose to read him or cite him or, or Right. So what we know is these kind of fantastic stories about his life, as opposed to the details of his writings. Um, for me, I, 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 the research process was not complex. I mean, in that sense, I mean, um, Sabaker's writings are fairly easily available uh, in Delhi um, and in, in Bombay, uh, in Mumbai, in the um, Maharashtra State Archives. So at that level, there wasn't a problem. I mean, I think where there is a problem now is um, is in trying to understand why why an academic is writing about um, Savarkar. I mean, when the project began, I thought that the greatest resistance actually came from friends on the left as opposed to people on the right. People on the right, the Hindu right, would say, of course, I mean, you should, everyone should read Savarkar. Whereas on... Uh, my friends on the left, and I'm using left as a very broad category, um, uh, were uh, questioning the idea that Savarkar was actually an intellectual, um, that he wrote things that were actually worth reading. I mean, whether we actually needed to read uh, systematically or carefully, um, what... And so for me, that was more... Uh, that has been, I think, more kind of an interesting challenge in trying to think through how to go. You know, there's a lot of rumors about Savarkar. There's, as I write about, there's lots of uh, misunderstandings about Savarkar. Um, there's lots of misunderstandings of how much he wrote or how much he didn't write. And so I think, but today, I don't think Hindutva can be ignored. Um, uh, and so I think if we're not going to look at the main architect of the project, uh, not to say that all of it is his project, but it is to say that uh, many of the things that he articulated are coming to fruition, uh, both conceptually, strategically, epistemologically, discursively. 
and it provides a certain kind of insight to thinking about um, you know what are the challenges that we are facing if you are to contest these sets of ideas or concepts um, because it's very clear that the disciplinary approaches to history, the disciplinary approaches to the humanities, the disciplinary approaches to social sciences is antithetical to Hindu history, right? So for those of us who are in the academy who have a commitment to a certain kind of either political or disciplinary project of writing, um, it doesn't matter which discipline you're in, um, we are all today under scrutiny and possible challenge regarding the kind of work that we do because it doesn't adhere to the writing of Hindu history, right? So that's kind of my kind of explanation as to why I think it's important to um, to, to sort of not only read uh, Savarkar, but also think with and against Savarkar in that sense, right? Um, but I do also think that it's... Um, it, Again, why Savarkar uh, for the Hindu right today, I think is, um, I've argued that I don't think there's any other intellectual they can turn to. Um, Savarkar is, is the one intellectual that they can all agree upon as a figure who has been marginalized in terms of uh, thinking about uh, these kind of writings, whether it's his writings or other, in other sorts of ways. Um, there have been contentious debates whether his image could be used. And this is not just more recently in Parliament, but dating back to the 1930s, where the Indian National Congress was against Savarkar's images being used in certain sets of places and things. Um, but I also, um, but in, in a couple of places, I've argued that Savarkar, in a sense, has achieved the status of the ghost father, right? That he is this kind of ghostly figure um, who is constantly hovering, um, and we're not sure when he is going to appear, right? And and every year there's, especially around Gandhi's death anniversary in January, there's this kind of resurrection of this debate of Savarkar's role, and as if um, there's going to be a resolution if we have, the, you know, uh, whether Savarkar was involved actually, and we have evidence of this, but there's this constant. Uh, evoking of Savarkar in part because I argued that there is no other thinker that they can actually evoke. I mean, you know, and and who are the intellectuals who are con who are reading as widely as Savarkar read and writing as widely as Savarkar wrote? And I think this is one of the reasons why uh, he also is being resurrected because he is perhaps um, the last Hindutva intellectual. I mean, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I say that slightly <laughs> controversially, but yes. <laughs> but but if if any Hindutvadi wants to you know tell me who is the person to read, I'm more than happy to uh, engage with who you know someone who, who who we can sort of look at and read and sort of think think with uh, regarding um, the future of this kind of thought. No, yeah. No, I, I think that's a very, very good point. And I have a slight controversial opinion about it that I do think that um, since the um, it, the way history is taught in India, I did my undergrads and gra MA and everything in India before coming to grad school here. And I have seen that there is an epistemic, for a, for a while epistemic, um, refusal to engage with things that have now turned out to be weapons in the hands of of um, the Hindutva 
a brigade and part of it is also studying religion it's something that i always keep saying that in india disciplinary study of religion has never evolved um and then there has been a refusal to study religion the way it's done in america like religious studies and you know so on and so forth and then that has slowly and this refusal to um study religion critically has given this rise to this other study of religion which is this hindutva study of religion of teaching again thinking of that as history uh and and then here we are so i do think that epistemic refusal has come at great costs uh in various ways of course um but yeah i i do think that there is definite requirement definitely required it is required that we um uh, engage with things that even we do not agree with uh, because otherwise we are just sort of playing into their uh, playing into the hands of and and the and the right wing and the hindutva this way of understanding history does not have disciplinary convention so it naturally can take and twist what it wants uh, in the absence of a sort of disciplinary ethos um so yeah i do think um that's a point yeah that's a very very important point but yeah i guess I, i don't want to keep you long we are past we are now 1 hour 22 minutes i'll just uh, ask one last question which is about what's your next project well i mean at one level i i'm not sure i'm done with sabarker yet but um but um so that's just to be conti- to be continued i'm not sure but but uh i had mentioned that i'm uh, i've been working on this project on the um, imperial history of tennis for <laughs> <laughs> for a while now um in collecting and and i mean it's it's a very familiar story at one level i mean for those um for those individuals who've done work in cultural history um that that every i i'm almost i'm almost convinced now i'm sure my uh, colleagues who do british history would probably correct me but uh or, or even english history that that pretty much everything that we think is quintessentially english is actually imperial um and and um uh, and and the story of tennis for me is also uh, reflects that right so you have this uh, individual who arrives in india uh in 1858 after the 1857 rebellions um he um spends time in in bangalore and in madras and then he experiments with tennis uh there um and then he returns back to britain any patents the game uh, we know as lawn tennis today and through his imperial connections um he uh, not only patents it writes a history of tennis um as a history of western civilization and uh, that connected to western civilization and christianity and uh and then proceeds to and the game just explodes right And so um I began to think about you know, the whole question of uh of tennis for a number of reasons. I mean, I've written small bits about it, but um both again a certain family connection to early tennis to um to just sort of thinking about tennis both as an idea and as a practice. Um figures like, you know, whether it's Edward Said who wrote about uh, you know, he was a, he was a daily tennis player, but he wrote about a uh, brief history of uh he had wrote a little bit about tennis um about the links between capitalism and tennis um and a figure like Pierre Bourdieu conceptualizes his 
key writings on habitus, arguing that, you know, uh, as a tennis player, it allowed him to think about um, these, the ways in which habitus is constructed. Um, but again, he's talking about, you know, colonial North Africa, as he's also conceptualizing habitus. So you have these kind of, I have these numerous threads of these kind of uh, both uh, these imperial links with tennis, both in terms of a social history, but also a kind of uh, uh, an intellectual history of um, uh, of ideas of tennis as a practice and tennis as an idea. But I'm not sure when I'll get to this, but I'm uh, because I think I have a little bit more on Savarkar to <laughs> to get to. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm very um, excited to read um, this book. I I um, I almost I mean I, I'm very bad at sports, but tennis is the one thing I can play a bit. So. <laughs> It's um yeah, but it's it's yeah. I'm very um that will be very exciting. So yeah, um we'll still be in the call. I'll just do the concluding remarks and then I'll just download the audio. So yeah, so thank you, Professor Chaturvedi, for joining us today. It was um a, a pleasure to know so much from you about um Savarkar and how it's done, and it, you took time out, and we're really really thankful to you. Great, thank you for having me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.